everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo Archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 135, and tonight, the Scopes Monkey Trial. What's up with that? All right. Nice to see everybody back. And by see everybody, I mean I'm saying some stuff and nobody's around and I'm talking at 2 a.m. So, uh... What should I talk about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about because you're getting no vote. Just like recording into a microphone by myself. I mean, too bad, man. Talking about the Scopes Monkey Trial. And so why do I want to do the Scopes Monkey Trial? It's because I think it came up last time for like just a moment, you know, and as I was talking about last time's episode whatever it was you see i just i do these all the time man you know i'm just i just work for you people and it's constant and it's just never ending and i'm like when did the scopes monkey trial come up last i'm like i don't even i don't even remember i just know it was episode 134 what did i what did i even talk about last time i don't even it's sad it's sad anyway it came up for a second and I was like, oh, yeah, Scopes Monkey Trial. And so today I thought I would just kind of expand on that. It's it sort of goes with my current focus on some of the old school classics, you know, why not talk about some of this, you know, stuff that's been around for a long time. So, OK, 
the setup with the Scopes Monkey Trial is this, this happens in 1925. It happens in the summer of 1925. So, hey, we're almost 99 years ago. <laughs> and it's called the Scopes Monkey Trial because there was a teacher named John Scopes, right? And, and this happens in the state of Tennessee. His teacher, John Scopes, is basically teaching evolution to his students and he's breaking Tennessee law because Tennessee at the time just had this new act come in called the Butler Act. And the Butler Act said, and you guessed it, that you can't deny Genesis and the Bible in your teaching. You must teach that and you can't teach evolution basically. So of course you can see, you can see the major litigation possibilities here because as we all know, we have the first amendment, right? Separation of church and state. So you're supposed to be able to just teach evolution, teach science. But according to this new act, this sort of extremely you know, religious right act that they had just passed in 1925, that you couldn't do that. And you had to make sure the Bible got due diligence. The part about the Scopes Monkey Trial, I bet a lot of you've heard this you know, name before. You go, oh, yeah, Scopes Monkey Trial, evolution, whatever. But I find some of the lesser known aspects of it really interesting. Like the trial itself is staged. And what I mean by that is it's still a real trial. OK, it's not a fake trial. But so the, you know, the person is really on trial and there's a real judge and there's a real judgment. And John Scopes would have to abide by whatever that real judgment is like his, you know, his citizenry is in jeopardy in this real way. But the trial is staged in terms of it was pushed like John Scopes was like pretty sure he taught evolution but but big names and big people wanted this trial to go ahead so like the ACLU which American Civil Liberties Union right got in basically got in touch with John Scopes and were like hey if you indeed say that you did this we'll defend you they had one of the most famous defense lawyers of all time Clarence Darrow like said he would defend him on the side of the prosecution. This guy, William Jennings Bryan was going to do it. He, William Jennings Bryan was a former presidential candidate, you know, known for sort of being this conservative right wing kind of person. And on top of all of that, the little Tennessee town was going to get like a big boost of like, tourism basically right and this little town is dayton tennessee so dayton tennessee basically gets this big trial to come in and this is crazy you guys this is really a major moment just in terms of how we in american culture learn about famous cases it's the first case to ever be broadcast over the radio right this is 1925 this is before television and all that kind of good stuff so it's a media madhouse right it's it's just this massive story that while 
again, the trial is real. It's like trumped up and made way huger than it otherwise would have been. You have these all-star lawyers. Really, they're they're litigating. They're really litigating culture, right? They're litigating not only the law in terms of can you teach evolution or not. They're sort of litigating that higher sort of pro or anti-religious stance, pro or anti-First Amendment, right? You can see how this would be boosted way up beyond kind of the reality of the case. So the case starts and they go through the whole thing. H.L. Mencken, who I'm guessing most of you have not necessarily heard that name, kind of a, a famous essayist and writer. But he was one of the many in the media who covered the case. He was very much pro John Scopes, right? He's pro the defense. And so he wrote things that were very pro defense and were very anti-prosecution. So kind of on the pro evolution side, being such kind of maybe an acerbic or creative writer, just his writing could really turn public sentiment, you know, over time. And as, as the trial progressed, and I think it, it went on like a week or so, a week and a half, that, that kind of length, right? This isn't something that dragged up for months and months. I think increasingly the Tennessee town and all the people who were kind of pro the Butler Act looked increasingly kind of foolish and backwards, right? So by the end of the trial, what happens is, and I think I, I think a lot of people don't even realize this necessarily. John Scopes was found guilty. He was found guilty of teaching evolution, right? So his fine, though, since there was no precedent, it was just like this new law to sort of be like, yes, we're very pro Bible. But they're like, I don't know. What do you do once you litigate this? John Scopes ends up having to pay a hundred bucks. That was the judge's judgment, right? hundred bucks, John Scopes. And I think in today's money, that's like, oh man, I don't know, maybe 1800 bucks. That's, isn't that amazing? Right. A hundred bucks in 1925 is, a, is around $1,800 of buying power today, <laughs> which I don't want to pay 1800 bucks, but if I'm part of a huge litigation like that, even if it's kind of for show, I'm still it's weird. You know, like if I was John Scopes, I would still be feel kind of weird. I'm like, man, I'm on trial. John Scopes, of course, did this largely because he believed in the teaching of evolution and he he wanted to get this. In front of the eyes of America, kind of as well, but still, I don't know, I'd be worried. So so he had to end up paying 100 bucks. And of course, in terms of losing his case, the conservative right saw that as as a win because they did win, but they didn't win in terms of public opinion. So really quickly there, I would say public opinion overall was very pro John Scopes and anti the Butler Act and the aspects of Tennessee that put that in in the first place. Another interesting wrinkle to this is William Jennings Bryan, right? The the lawyer for the prosecution, several time presidential candidate. He died five days after the, the trial was over. So 
he had kind of become the figurehead of of this movement a little bit. He dies right after. So they kind of lose their their head. They kind of lose their their leader a little bit. And that only hurts their their situation. So ultimately with the Scopes Monkey trial, you get kind of a an opening for really the rest of the 20th century in terms of being able to teach evolution, you know, science, that side of things, kind of keeping the First Amendment standing and not have any real inroads against that until much, much later. So it really does set precedent for at least the next 50 years, if not really the rest of the 20th century. So it is important in terms of, again, how the general public kind of allows us, they let it go, right, for a long time. So even if somebody is very orthodox religion, they still kind of know, oh, well, but according to the state, you know, according to federal law, you just teach evolution. So very important when we come back. What does this mean in terms of the modern movement of creationism? Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code pseudoarchaeology at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code pseudoarchaeology at liquidiv.com. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 135. Can you believe it? And we are discussing the Scopes Monkey Trial. And by we are discussing, I mean I'm talking into a microphone at two in the morning by myself. It's a lonely world in poet in uh, Podcasterville, my friends. It's even right there. I messed up. I went the Pope Pod Podcaster. <sighs> tough man it's tough so we see what that the scopes monkey trial has really set a precedent for the teaching of evolution and i had said that it had kind of set the stage for the rest of the 20th century but i think we all know that there's kind of always been a push against evolution there's kind of been an anti-evolution streak in america you know in terms of just teaching scientific fact because of kind of the religiosity of certain aspects of our country but we kind of get saved at the 11th hour by the first amendment in the 1970s and really into the 1980s where you feel it, you have the rise of the religious right yeah 
you know, I remember seeing some of this as a little kid, right? That, that, that push, the kind of religion comes on TV of televangelists and so many people in America kind of believe in that, like anti-evolution, anti-Charles Darwin, you need to teach the Bible. So you have a rise of a movement that we can call creationism, but there's so much more to it. Creationism is just simply the idea that all life on earth is created by God. If you believe that life on earth is created by God, you're a creationist in the most basic sense. Now, there have been various people and movements over the times that are constantly trying to push this into schools, constantly trying to masquerade as how somehow creationism is science. They'll call it creation science, right? And why this fits into this podcast so well is it's total pseudoscientific crap every time, right? Other ideas that go with creationism, you guys might've heard of intelligent design. That's another one. You'll hear creationism, creationism, science, intelligent design, right? It's the same thing though. Every time it, all it is, is we believe that God created the world and you need to teach that in biology class. Like that's what this is. And they're always taking some other way with it. They're always trying to get around the first amendment and the first amendment always stops. It stops it at the 11th hour because there's separation between church and state, right? You're not supposed to teach one religion's outlook in terms of their mythological origins, origin story, right? And when you're dealing with like, again, it's all the same. Creationism, again, is the, the basic idea. Okay, life's created by God. Intelligent design, they always go like, look, man, life is just too complicated. It's impossible to make that just from evolution. What do you mean this came from a single cell? No, right? heard that again and again i have to say that i haven't felt the creationism push so bad in the last handful of years it used to be much worse like 10 years ago 20 years ago i feel like people who push that have kind of gone on to do different things will it be back i'm sure never ends you know but i haven't had to be on the defensive that much like i would say for I've been teaching full time for like 20 years and almost every semester I'll teach a biological anthropology class. And when I first started, this would be like 2004, 2005, 2006, right? I was way more conscious of new earth creationists. That's another, that's another term that goes with this new earth creationists, meaning that you believe the literal translation of the Bible in terms of when the earth started more on that in a minute. I was worried about that in class. I, I, I could feel it if I talked about evolution, how the class, a big portion of the class would get kind of like icy. You know, you can feel that when you're lecturing. But again, in the last, I don't know, decade, I haven't really felt that. I'm sure there's people out there who still have these beliefs, but it's just not, it's like no big deal, you know, which is nice. Again, you know, let's be honest, it'll be back. What? What is a new earth creationist? A new earth creationist is someone who believes what Archbishop James Uth Usher said. <laughs> Look how much I screwed that up. <laughs> it's what Dasha Bush Dishibasha said. Archbishop James Usher, right? 
This guy was the archbishop around, oh man, it's around 1650 AD. I could be a little off there, but it's, it's, in that, it's in that vicinity. And he, through a very meticulous read of the Bible, was like, the earth started on October 23rd, 4004 BC, right? And in fact, not just October 23rd, 4004 BC, but October 23rd, 4004 BC at 9 a.m., right? And so that is, according to an extremely literal read of the Bible, the earth is just over, how old are we this year? Let's see, 4004 BC. So we're 6,000 and 28 years old. Good for us. Just a quick 6,028 6, years since the beginning of time, since the beginning of the earth. Now you can see just by the huge amount of scientific data that that's ludicrous, right? That would mean the dinosaurs, all of that happened in the last 6,000 years, which is just, it's laughable. We can have a laugh at that because it's, it's idiotic. It's the dopiest, you know, like, one nice thing about being a human is we record things and we learn things and we can learn things to teach the next generation. And we're at a point in this human drama where we know the earth is millions, billions of years old. We know it. We can prove it like all kinds of different, all kinds of different ways, you know, and it's easy and it's just no big deal. And we can move on to even more difficult questions, right? So in terms of the age of the earth, new earth creationism is a cartoonish joke, right? It's, it's so far beyond. So the arguments, though, that, that constantly come up, you know, is that uh, first, they try and get this into schools by going, hey, look. We're just one idea of many. So we just want to be in there with everyone else. You know, why are you so close minded? How often have we heard this, my friends, on the pseudo-archaeology podcast, right? That's the classic, like, look, I'm not saying that aliens necessarily built the pyramids, but it's, it's one good possibility along with the other possibilities. Why can't we teach that? You see, that's how you get in stuff that has no basis in anything the same old idea same old arguments i've heard these so many times or that the the intelligent design thing right we're we're just too complex it's impossible you hear stuff like how do you make a 747 from nothing you know that that kind of thing it's like all this stuff is just an ignorance of how evolution works you know evolution is so once you learn it and look at look at it it's so elegant in how straightforward it is that it's it's simply like look this is how life on earth grew and changed over time it was a reaction to its environment the babies that could deal with the environment lived the babies that couldn't deal with the environment died and then the babies that lived had babies of their own slowly 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 changing what creatures were like because the good traits made it and the bad traits didn't there you go right You'll hear arguments like, hey, where are the intermediate fossils? Meaning where are the fossils between, you know, one when one creature evolves to a new version of itself. We have intermediate fossils all over the place. But with these people, as soon as you tell them that and show them that 
they just flatly refuse to consider facts. Right. Remind you of anything? Sure. Every Graham Hancock argument we've ever had. It's exactly the same, my friends. What's so funny starting this podcast, all I had to do is rev up my same old anti-creationism batteries. You know, it's the same. It's just I've heard this stuff my entire career. If you want places to go in terms of what are some great examples of things like intermediate fossils, what, what's a great way to explain how, how evolution works? I recommend a book called Why Evolution is True. You'll never guess what Why Evolution is True is about. It's by this author named Jerry Coyne. He's great. I love this book. It came out in 2009. I require it. It is the required book for my biological anthropology class. He's so good because because I'm sure Jerry has had to deal with this stuff his entire career, just like the rest of us. So he's ready with the rebuttals to all this. Some of my favorite examples in the book is he does whales. He looks at the evolution of whales, how they were land mammals at first and then slowly over time evolved into whales, something so far away from what they were like before. Right. And he goes through how they like spend more and more time in the water, kind of kind of a hippopotamus kind of thing. Right. But he shows all the intermediate fossils. It's great. What a great sort of scientific show of evidence and data and taking this serious, you know, but, but also an extremely good writer. It's really well written, you guys. I highly recommend why evolution is true. And it it's the best one. Jerry Coyne also has a kick-ass blog post that he does. I'll try and put a link to that underneath today, but so good. I have such respect for that dude. He's great. I would also angle you towards your friend in mind, Richard Dawkins. He wrote The Greatest Show on Earth, also that came out in 2009. You're like, why did these books come out both in 2009? Is there a secret alien controlling us all? Force these books in 2009? No, that's the 200th anniversary of Charles Darwin's birth. So a lot of kind of evolution stuff, you know, good time to sell a book. Go for them. It was smart. Now, The Greatest Show on Earth. I love Charles Dawkins. Charles Dawkins. I love Richard Dawkins. I love Richard Dawkins. The Greatest Show on Earth. I also, I like as well. It's it's excellent. And boy, if you read both of these, you'll know evolution, my friends. But the Greatest Show on Earth has more of an edge to it. It's not quite as good like for students because there's kind of an anti-religious edge in The Greatest Show on Earth. And that can be a bit of a turnoff. Now, Dawkins is such a good writer that it's fun to read. But if you have somebody who just wants to learn evolution and they're just kind of like, hey, man, I just want to know about this stuff. I vote why evolution is true over the greatest show on earth just because it it just feels more relaxed and a bit more neutral even though it it's not it tells you evolution in a very step-by-step manner but it doesn't have as big of a chip on its shoulder so uh if you're between the two why evolution is true will win out when we return back to scopes monkey trial one more time with the movie inherit the wind 
All right, welcome back one last time to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 135, that started with the Scopes Monkey Trial and went on towards talking about creationism and all that kind of good stuff. And where are we going to end up? We're going to end up, I think, by talking about the movie Inherit the Wind. But first, I want to say two more things that I forgot the last segment. I should have said it then, but I didn't. Why do people still even listen to this? I don't know. Where's the professionalism? I wish it was here. So two things. One, the other argument that, of course, we always get against evolution is, you know, evolution is only a theory. Whenever somebody says that, all they're doing is showing their scientific ignorance and their ignorance in evolution in general. Right. And. When somebody says it's only a theory, it's just, again, they're ignorant in what the term theory means. Now, theory every day, if we're just using it in our everyday speak, it, it means a guess. You know, well, I have a theory about that. And uh, I, th- I don't know. I think they left around four o'clock. Right. It's just it's just a sort of a toss off guess. And that's just how it's used in everyday language. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But theory in science is an explanation. Right. It's a tried and tested explanation and so if you have a theory for something it is a serious well thought out explanation and that's what evolution is you know so far i mean charles darwin published in 1859 ever since 1859 no serious counter argument to evolution you know it's been standing an awful long time, my friends. And one more thing before we do our final little discussion on the movie Inherit the Wind. I taught at a religious school once about a decade ago, and I was really worried. I had to teach evolution, which is like hilarious, right? I'm coming in to teach evolution and I'm like, oh, my God, are they going to are they going to toss me out? Are they going to burn me at the stake? Are they going to do strange, unknown to me rituals? But in a total vote up for them, I had to go to like a uh, meeting, like whenever you get hired as a new professor. And I just I just taught like two classes there and that was it. But you go to a meeting where they kind of show you the ropes of the school, right? The new your newly hired faculty. They're like, oh, here's where the faculty room is, whatever. Here's the bookstore. This is how this works. This is how you add students on your computer. What you know, they go through all the stuff. One thing they did, again, this is a religious school, which I thought was great. They specifically took a moment and they were like, and you guys out there who are teaching any of the harder sciences, we want our students to know science. So you need to do what you're supposed to do. If you're teaching chemistry, you teach them chemistry. If you're teaching them biology, you teach them biology. Right. And I thought that was so great. Right. That's evidence of a school and the people who happen to believe in the religion in that area having a real solid spine. They understand. They understand the bigger picture. And I just I was so impressed by that. Right. That's a way how a religious school becomes very impressive to somebody who's not religious. You just follow the law. And more than that, you're thoughtful for your own students, you know, and. You want them to learn the real stuff. So I was always really impressed by that religious school. I thought that was great. 
Now, finally, the movie Inherit the Wind. What's up with that? Okay, the movie Inherit the Wind is specifically about the Scopes Monkey trial. Funnily, they they change the names of the main characters like William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow, right? The two lawyers. These are real people. They change their names, but it's obviously about the Scopes Monkey trial. This movie comes out in 1960, and it's based on a play, Inherit the Wind, from 1955, from like five years earlier. The movie's in black and white, and it's just basically a courtroom drama. What it is. It has Spencer Tracy in it, and one of his, kind of one of his, you know, closer to the end roles. He's older in it. Gene Kelly's in it. For any of you who don't know who Gene Kelly is, Mr. Singing in the Rain himself, right? Known for dancing. He is in a non-dancing role. Spencer Tracy is going to play Clarence Darrow, who's the, you know, the ACLU lawyer defending John Scopes. Gene Kelly basically plays the H.L. Mencken character, the writer, right? The reporter who's watching this whole whole thing unfold. And I swear, Gene Kelly kicks ass. I just got to say, he does great. Like, you're like, I'm like, wow, man. Not only are you a supremely talented dancer, but you take the dancing away. You still are a kick-ass actor. So good job, Gene Kelly. Spencer Tracy, of course, always does great. Most of the other actors you probably won't recognize in, in any real way. Harry Morgan, who uh, was Colonel Potter in MASH. This is, of course, about 10 or 15 years before the TV series MASH. He plays the judge. And so you'll write, you'll be like, hey, it's Colonel Potter from MASH. And he's he's the judge. Now, it's funny when I watch this movie about once a decade just to kind of remember and reminisce. And if you're 18 watching this movie, certain aspects might be kind of too slow for you. Certain aspects might be kind of too cheesy for you. Just the fact is in it's in black and white. You're gonna be like, what? This isn't realistic. (laughs) But you guys, it's a solid movie. Like, I can recommend it. Now, it does. Again, it's 1960. We're talking this thing's like 64 years old. And it suffers a little from the time. There's early on in the movie, it just it follows the case, you know, and it's very honest to to its source material. So it's a it's a pretty damn good follow of the true history of of the scopes monkey trial of course it's not perfect of course they change things in order to make it more interesting of course they move things around like if you wanted to be a real stickler you could be like this isn't quite right like overall they make the reality a bit hotter if that makes sense like if if you're in drama it's always about making your scene a bit hotter and what they do here is they change certain historic events just to make the story more taut and a little bit more exciting. Like they're going to they have William Jennings Bryan die in court. Right. In reality, he died five days later after the trial was all over. And we don't know for sure if, if, if the trial really had anything to do with his death. But of course, in the movie, it's right after he's, you know, kind of given a big speech. He has a big fat heart attack and dies, you know, and it just makes it more exciting. Now, so I'm not here to say that it's an absolute tick by tick perfect recreation of what happened but then it would be a documentary it's not a documentary i think the weakest parts are sort of sometimes early on some of the kind of some of the religious pontification and some of the things the local people say just feels a little outside of what we would consider kind of how real real people talk 
you know, today you're like, I don't know if they would really talk like that. But I got to tell you guys, if you can kind of get through the first part of it, it gets pretty damn good. And there is some great just basic dramatic scene work in there, especially near the end. All of them, but a couple of Spencer Tracy's things, a couple Gene Kelly moments, a couple times, especially near the end between the two of them. Just killer scenes for the sake of scenes. Like, I swear to God, you guys, I was watching this thinking like if I was a drama major and I had to do a scene with a partner, I'm like, man, I take a couple of these closing scenes from Inherit the Wind. They're they're just they're like taught dramatic scenes. Like, man, this is how you write a scene, you know, just super watchable. So I recommend it. I understand if early on you're like, eh, this feels kind of cheesy. It feels kind of dated. Just kind of stick through it because there's some great drama happening in there. You know, one thing I remember about watching this, I watched this with my dad, I think. It just happened to be on TV when I was a kid. But let's say I'm 12. and. It wasn't like this special date with my dad or something. It just happened that we were sitting on the couch and this came on. And it was just sort of one evening. It was just the two of us, I think. I don't think my mom was really watching. I think my brother was doing something else. (laughs) We're watching this movie. My dad, you guys, was the biggest, staunchest atheist of like all time. Like, you think I'm an atheist? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm I'm an open arms kumbaya. Let's all group hug compared to my dad. My dad was just like Mr. Science. And I swear what's so funny is I I watched a couple scenes from Inherit the Wind earlier today. And again, everything's earlier because it's now like two thirty in the morning for me. Why don't I get up earlier and record on time? But anyway, I'm. I watched some scenes and especially the last scene just to refresh myself and remember it because I I was like, I think I watched this with my dad and I'm pretty sure the last scene goes like this. And I I made sure in the very last image, Spencer Tracy picks up a copy of Charles Darwin's book. Right. And he picks up a copy of the Bible and he sort of looks thoughtfully at both origin of species and the Bible. Then he kind of slaps them together because they're both books and they're both around the same size. Right. And he kind of has a look of like satisfaction, both that his case went well for him and that he is a religious believer who is still sort of happy to defend the teaching of evolution. And And when the books were slapped together to make it look like there was some sort of evenness to it. My dad was just like, oh, God, because <laughs> the idea that the Bible would even be in the same you know, room as Origin of Species. My dad was just like, <laughs> and I, I, I love that about my dad, man. Oh, that was great. So funny. I will say, though, that there is some truth in my dad would even have to deal with it. And he might even strike me down tonight, you know, because I'm even telling you guys this. But realizing that the number one belief system in America is both a religious belief system and science and what your average person in America. And we think of ourselves as so religious and in in, in some ways America is, but in some ways it's, it's relaxed because although we may have a religious mindset, 
everyone knows how an iPhone works. You know what I mean? Nobody thinks an iPhone works on dragon's blood and potions. Except when you're really mad. But we understand. We understand you plug it in. There's a battery in there. So we're very scientific minded in the same same breath. And so your average person, yes, will believe in religion. And may even believe in aspects, the most basic aspects of creationism, like that the world was created by God, but they believe in evolution. They believe that the earth is 4.6 billion years old. They believe in dinosaurs. They believe in all that kind of stuff. And really for them, they just go like, hey, life on earth itself is godly. You know, it is it is of the supernatural. It's an amazing thing. And they they believe that, you know, maybe the the power and influence of God came in when the first cell finally evolved onto the scene. And, and I think we can all be cool with that, right? That's that's a way of kind of putting both of those belief systems together. I have no problem with that. My dad has a problem with that. And so that's how the Scopes Monkey Trial has helped us up until today. And with that, I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.